0: Hey everybody, it's me, it's your old buddy, Steve Simonson, and uh, we're doing it again. Uh, What's happening now is uh, I'm talking, you're listening to me talk. And uh, now that you've got that brilliant insight and update, I want to just tell you what's on the agenda today. So this is part three of our uh, mini-series about sourcing in India. Uh, In part one and two, I've already kind of gone through some of the contexts and some of the expectations that I have. And here in the final installment in this series, I'm going to kind of wrap up some of the takeaways and some of the summaries about sourcing in India with some lessons that uh, reflect on sourcing kind of at large. doesn't matter where you source. If you're going to do a private label or branded product, I don't like the name private label so much as it implies you're just putting a sticker on something. Um, If you're really trying to build a brand and you're going to do your own contract manufacturing, These are best practices, at least they're practices that I try to uh, employ throughout the world. And my team uh, more accurately said, does this kind of work uh, wherever it is in the world. And that spans pretty much every continent, except obviously Antarctica, not a huge amount of production down there. So let's talk about some of the things. In fact, let me just tell you, now we're into the smart section of the presentation because I've got my glasses on. And that helps me read and see. And I know you got a reflection here, but I don't know how to stop that. So I just want to make sure I give you some of the, the, the finer points that uh, I've observed here on my trip to India. So first of all, it's a dynamic place. It's a, uh, a great place in many ways. And there's aspects of it that are culture shocky uh, to you know somebody coming from America, especially after uh, you know the kind of a pandemic lull in global travel. Uh, I have had the opportunity to go to Mexico and to the UK uh, and to Netherlands, but I have not been kind of in Asia proper or certainly not the subcontinent since the, before the pandemic. And the last time I was in India was in 2017. So as always, I appreciate the culture shock moments and I value kind of the differences that we see. And, and uh, you know, some of them are amusing, some of them are kind of shocking and others are just fun. And that's That's how I try to see it. So uh, let's see if I can get rid of these glasses. I'll just pretend that I can see it. You guys can see me anyway. So uh, as a first, you know, kind of point, one of the best things about traveling is to be able to get rest, right? So today is not one of those days. Uh, It's already kind of uh, late into the evening here in India. And then later on about midnight, I will, you know, go to the airport. I'm going to fly to London. And then move on to some meetings there the same day in Southampton, uh, England. So this is going to be one of those, you know, 24 to 36-hour days. And hopefully, you know, if I get lucky, I'll sleep on the plane. So uh, as I talked about in part two, if you caught that, it actually takes work. It actually takes effort if you're going to look uh, at doing something that is, you know, meaningful, that has the potential to be impactful. And I do want to call your attention to the Empowery.com website, where I've posted a blog post for India Sourcing Part 1, 2, and 3. Uh, they're all now live, and you can go check those out, and you can see additional photos and videos and so forth that gives you, again, greater context and some written insights that you can refer to back later. So, for example, if you're listening to this on a podcast or watching it live or some recording somewhere, uh, then this will give you the opportunity. If you just go to Empowery.com, you can go to the blog section, and you'll find all three of the Sourcing in India articles. So let's just, at the high level, remember what we have to do when we're sourcing. So as a matter of process, we have to start with the outcome that we want, right? So we we don't just randomly fly off to a country and then figure out what to buy. We have some idea from a product discovery process online. We figure out, hey, this might sell. We try to refine the specifications. We try to visualize and even... make tangible some of the differences uh, that we need to have versus our competitors. And you do that quite often by just reading the reviews and figuring out, can you engineer out the negatives and can you focus and achieve the positives that the, the customers are giving a product review? So starting with the outcome that you want pretty reasonable and makes a lot of sense. My, my point here is you don't travel for the sake of travel. You're traveling for an outcome and you better know that. It's much easier to go somewhere, uh, you know, a destination that you've predestined and pre-organized versus just kind of wandering the wilderness and hoping you'll find up you know find out that great idea or end up with this winning product. So you've already done that kind of online product search, and then you move into the uh, sourcing stage and now you know what you want, right. Next thing is to understand your requirements. This is now getting into the specifications of an item. You're getting into the details. Thickness, length, width—you uh, know, gauge, the metallurgy uh, numbers. You know what? What are the details? There's so many things that I really encourage you guys to know your your requirements ahead of time, far beyond just here's a picture. And we've kind of been spoiled a little bit by just sending pictures off to China, and we leave a lot to chance when we do that. Uh, no matter where you send the picture, by the way, I'm not picking on China uh, specifically. That process of just sending pictures and getting a perfect outcome every time is it's not so great uh and and I would generally encourage you to um, get deeper in terms of your requirements and that next level of depth comes with providing diagrams make some diagrams for your your factories and your your potential suppliers if you can you know they they go beyond just kind of line drawings and into cad drawings where they have specs and and lengths and widths and you know you can even run uh 3d kind of prints on it you know to get a physical copy or 3d modeling uh to do you know online kind of versions that show you everything that you want to see so diagrams are important now i know again if you've been sourcing for any great length of time from asia and china specifically you just send pictures often of your competitions item or a send them a sample and that still has value, that still has merit. In fact, that that works in India too, right? If you send pictures and then samples, you're gonna come up closer to your target item. But the idea of differentiation and the idea of understanding when things are off spec really do trace back to diagrams and and understanding your, your points of differentiation to begin with. So for example, if your competition has a hinge and the hinge is made of aluminum and yours is made of steel or something, You know, that's stronger, uh, you know, has a a better tensile strength, uh, then your product is likely to be better. But you need to be able to articulate that. You need to be able to understand those nuanced differences. Even the, you know, at a curve of an item, you know, if the the thickness is reduced, you know, from three millimeter to two millimeter, maybe visually you can't see that, but that creates a, a breaking point on that product. These are the types of things that I want you to really concentrate on all those little details and getting CAD drawings and, and so forth for an item really is not that expensive. And, and, you know, there may be a resource in India we can share with you later that can help you with those types of things. Uh The next thing, once you, once you have those things is you, you want to do an RFQ process, right? You, you send out to some of the, the potential candidates uh, uh, for your factory and you send them an RFQ and you just say, Hey, um, you know, what's the price on this? Here's the, some of the details that I'm looking for, that's um, kind of an easy way to get the process started. But remember that price is not the only thing when you do a request for quote. Again, you're trying to compare, you know, the the quality and and the overall value proposition because it's not just price. If they say, "Yeah, I'll give you a cheap price and I'll deliver it next year," that doesn't help you. Or if they say, "I can deliver it immediately, but their price is double the competition," also doesn't help you. And the only way you know these details about the kind of market price is to get multiple quotes to the extent that you can. I don't like buying products in a vacuum. The the competition gives you some index because you can figure out what they're selling it for. And then if you have a margin, but that RFQ process really is important, but it's about the overall relationship, not just price. Uh, And then finally, you may also choose to compare samples at this stage of the game, right? You actually get physical samples where some of the differences between the, the competitors or or potential providers are more clear to you, right? The tangible feel may give you some uh, opportunity to kind of see what's happening, you know, with this guy versus that guy, the weight, the gauge, the density, the shine, the, you know, material, whatever it is, physical samples are always necessary. And then finally, once you once you pick a winner, you kind of want to figure out, do I, you know, I want to trust, but I need to verify that trust. So if you're going to pick a winner in the the context of a factory, you then need to figure out, well, what, do I want to do a factory audit and send an inspection company in there to kind of verify what I think I already know, the size of the company, how long they've been around, you know their revenue, staff, factory upkeep, uh, those types of things, you know, looking out, do they have a bunch of child labor there, right? These types of things. And so a factory audit may be kind of the the last step that you you take before you cross that finish line and call it done. Uh, There are other process control elements you may choose to go deeper on, checking on the ISO certificates, uh, checking on, you know, safety and environmental claims, social responsibility, the living conditions, uh, and working conditions for that matter of the, the workforce. All of those, uh, there are programs and, and third-party inspection companies that will do those types of surveys and audits for you to make um, that part of the equation, that part of the due diligence easier for you to execute. Uh, and Then once you have finally made that selection, and they passed all the hurdles, then you move into the, any tooling, um, any molding or sample process. So let's just say for the sake of discussion, you're doing an injection molding, they got to make the mold, right? So they have to make the tooling and then they make the mold and then they move into production. And understanding and owning uh, that process is really important, particularly if you have specialized tooling or molds that are custom and unique for your company. I would highly recommend holding those at a third party location. Now, there are some large companies, maybe public companies, or maybe you have doing business with them a long, long time. Maybe you choose to trust them. But I have seen many times, not once, not twice, not like gossip on the street. I've seen many times where, you know, factories will take your mold and they'll run it for somebody else. So you paid for all the mold, production costs, tooling, et cetera, which can amount to, you know, hundreds at a minimum, but often mid-thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. And they'll just use it for another customer, um, possibly a competitor. But <coughs> most often, it's somebody that you'll never know Purchase from them, somebody in a different continent even. But the point is, you know, molds and tools and all this, they have a lifespan to them, right? You don't want to uh, have somebody else using the lifespan of your, your stuff if you paid for it, if you own it, and certainly if it's your proprietary brand. So that means that you need to really uh, take custody and control of that to avoid any surprises. No lightning bolts on that. And then finally, once you're done with any kind of pre-production steps, you do move into the actual production. This might involve you having an inspector on site. If the process is complex or there are aspects that you don't fully understand or that are vital to the outcome, then you may choose to have an inspector there on site while they're producing it to look for trouble. Most E-commerce companies, most brand builders, uh, are usually just doing a pre-shipment inspection, which means production's already complete and the, the products boxed and on pallets and wrapped up and ready to be shipped. And then the inspector comes in and pulls some pieces to do um, kind of spot checks. And they'll they'll just pull pieces, you know, at random and, and do a certain percentage of tests. And if the tests pass, um, they you know, everybody's happy and, and life moves on. If they don't pass, they do another set of samples and, and see if that passes. And then they look uh, for solving any defects or any missed specifications. So, you know, ideally uh, everything passes and the, the shipment now is ready to ship. And really now it's time to turn it over to the logistics department, right? Manufacturing's kind of done. And operationally the logistics team needs to now move that product. Maybe you have your factory giving you DDP pricing, Maybe you have a freight forwarder who's taking care of it, giving you a DDP price or some variation of that. Whatever it is, that's when the next part of the process begins. So production is done and then logistics process begins. I want to give a shout out to uh, Megla. She was able to uh, introduce uh, myself and my colleagues here in India to a couple great resources, including a third party inspector and a freight company and both of those specialists here in India were a great introduction so thank you Megla, and uh, we appreciate your help and support there and uh, we certainly love what you're doing over there uh uh, at your India group there getting people educated and giving them access to tools and so forth uh Powery is a big fan of Megla and company over there Margaret and and the whole gang uh we really do appreciate the help so thank you again uh, and then finally, I would just, uh, you know, point out that uh, even when you're asking factories, so if we're, you know, let's back up out of the process and back into the the investigation. When you're searching for factories, if you ask a factory, can you do this? Uh, it's very common, especially in Asia, particularly in China, uh, for people to say, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And that yes, we can also has a wide variation of what that actually means. Yes, we can. Could mean, sure, no problem. We do it all the time. It can mean, probably, it kind of looks familiar, but I don't really know. It can mean, heck no. Uh, that's way outside of our skill set. Uh, and it could also say, I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm just saying yes, right? And, and there's a whole, you know, there's there's just so many ways that yes, we can, or yes, I understand. All of those things can mean the opposite. Uh, or some variation in between. So when you are on the ground sourcing, you really need to, to look for body language. You need to ask questions. You need to come at it from different directions to be sure that they really do understand the requirements. It, some of that is reduced when you have written specs and you have drawings and, and CADs and so forth. But it really is a responsibility of the sourcing person to make sure that the, your counterpart understands what you're asking for. And I would highly recommend. Now, again, this is just crazy old Steve talking, but I'd highly recommend not speaking in slang, trying not to use colloquialisms that are you know local to your uh, area of the world. I would avoid telling long, drawn-out stories about how important things are. Uh, none of that will matter. You know, none of that helps the situation. The only thing that matters is what's written down. Right, so if it's not written, it's it's not part of the equation, and that's that's a, a fair way to look at it from the perspective of the factory. Just because you had you know a, a long session and you said all of these things, if it wasn't written down, it's not on the purchase order or some other corresponding document. Really, it's your it's your fault, not their fault, if you are not um, if you don't get what you expected based on these kind of side conversations. So. My point about this is if you don't take responsibility for the communication, you're going to open up uh, yourself to some some potential surprises. And while English is much more, you know, kind of universal here in India, it's it's still kind of the second language, right? All of these uh, regions in India have many, many languages. It, it's uh, As I said in the blog article, it, India is not homogenous in any way, not even a little bit. Wildly varied, different religions, different customs, um, you know, different uh, languages I mentioned earlier, different foods, right? All of this is so so crazy, different that we we shouldn't take into consideration and go, well, I'm buying from India, I should just think about this one thing or think about this one way of doing things. You really need to kind of customize it for each relationship that you form to make sure that they understand what you're asking for and that they can actually do it. And your mission is not to get them to say yes if they can't do it. Your mission actually is to get them, you know, I like to ask, what are you best at? What's your best-selling product? What have you done the longest? You know, show me your most, the product you're most proud of because I want to find out what they're good at. I'm not trying to jam my idea down them and get them to agree. That's a tenuous agreement if they agree to do something they're not comfortable with. And it's fraught with risk, right? And so every time we have a conversation, half of our energy, more than half probably, is spent on trying to disqualify the candidate. Not because we're you know, mean or mad or any of that, but it's just because we don't want to set them up to fail. Our mission is to not waste our time, not waste their time, and to bring the project towards success. And if we kind of trust too much or... Expect that they understand all these, you know, weird slang sayings that we're saying to them, or have empathy for this long, drawn out story about how we got screwed on a, uh, you know, past claim or a past project. None of that matters to them. Most of it, they will nod and and say yes, and and there may even be some level of uh, kind of comprehension, but not enough. In the, uh, I've witnessed this many times from you know colleagues or or uh, other people on the road. It's not enough uh, comprehension for you to achieve your outcome. You need to really break it down, be friendly, be fair, be firm, and and most of all, be clear and articulate about what you really want. Nuances will create problems if you are not careful. So, I, I you know I want to say thanks to, uh, Pabna Sharma who really helped set up this whole trip you know, it's two straight weeks, uh, a lot of effort there. And again, a a shout out to Megla and uh, her great network introductions and all the people there. Uh, You know, we don't do sourcing for other companies uh, at this stage of the game. We only do it, you know, for ourselves. So I've had a lot of inquiries saying, hey, can you find this for me or can you help me? Or, you know, how do I get set up to, you know, to have your team help me? And I just apologize for those folks uh, in advance. We just don't have the capacity to take, uh, external work. I'm just doing this as kind of a, uh, friendly, you know, share. And as part of my kind of volunteer work for empowery.com. So, uh, the, the summary is tangible results are things that you should expect to take away from a sourcing trip, actionable things like, can I make a PO? Can I order a sample? Did we get a spec, you know, have we moved the ball forward? Those are tangible outcomes, including the point of we're ready to place a PO and and launch this product. Those are tangible outcomes that we should expect. And that's kind of how you measure the financial ROI, right? I've, I've flown all over the world. I'm in hotels. I got planes, trains, automobiles all over the place. And there are costs with that, not the least of which is my own time. And so I have to take those tangible outcomes and compare that on the ROI to be sure that I'm doing a good job, that I'm a good steward for the company resources. But there are some intangibles I want to talk about just for a minute. In you know one of the blog articles I talked about relationships. It's the relationships that are intangible, but they have the potential to make the ROI, you know, 10x or 100x the tangible uh, upfront outcomes. So let's just say for the sake of discussion on this trip. I'm able to place a PO for three or four product lines. That's really good and wildly successful trip. And, and I have to say this has been a successful trip. India is uh, full of opportunity and it's dynamic and it's exciting. There's a lot of ROI that's already going to happen as a result of that or has a high potential. I mean, until I see the product in the uh, warehouse, it's hard to hard to call it a win, but it has high, high potential. But it's the relationships that we have already – uh, reinforced or developed new here on this trip that will pay dividends for years to come. And that relationship dividend is, is again, more valuable than the tangible. And it's something I want you guys to not forget because it's also very difficult to to get that relationship ROI if you're not going out in person. Now, again, I know not everybody can get out and, and go see factories all over the world. There's still plenty of restrictions. China just uh, increased their, They're quarantined from 21 days, which is already untenable, to 28 days plus, that's in a hotel, 28 days at home. So this is like two months. They're not interested in people coming in from the outside. So I am lucky enough that I've got a team there that can keep our China stuff going, and and the same goes for Vietnam and Malaysia. Uh, We use third-party places when we can't get our team there, and India is kind of no different um, from a, a standpoint. We need to get boots on the ground to see people build relationships and create those results, both tangible and intangible that I just talked about. So it's been great memories, uh, wonderful experiences. I highly encourage you guys, if you get the chance and it's part of your business strategy to get out there and go source in, you know, your, your factory kind of desired geography. So it depends on where you want to source right there. I think India has super high potential uh, for Europe, especially in the UK. I think it does quite well in the United States as well. I I met with a company and 40% of Walmart sales in a particular category come from this company, right? And uh, same with Target and same with Costco. Like these guys are dominating from India inside the United States. So it's not that India can't be competitive, but I do think that Mexico will give India a little bit of a run for the money in the coming, let's say three to five years. So uh, that's it for me, everybody. I do appreciate you guys uh, playing along uh, at home as I go on this uh, fun adventure. I see I got a comment coming in here. Oh, we got my buddy, Michael. Uh, I don't know if you're still there, Michael, but uh, uh, thank you. And uh, (laughs) I thought I was going home tonight, but it turns out that I'm going to London and staying over in London for a few days, actually in Southampton. Uh, to conduct uh, some final business there on another company. And then Saturday, I fly home, everybody, to Seattle. And Sunday morning at 5 a.m., I go back to the airport to fly to Phoenix. So it's never a dull moment, but uh, I feel uh, grateful and and thankful to be able to do all that. So thanks one and all uh, for following the journey. And if if there's anything we could do for you, don't hesitate to contact the good people at Empowery. Uh, com and they can uh, give you a hand. And, and I certainly uh, welcome you to to join Empower as well. One final note. If you are interested in coming to uh, a Extraordinarily Mastermind, uh, it's going to be amazing. Uh, over the course of three days, uh, it's going to be in Miami. It's only $199. We've rented out this giant mansion, um, or Empowery has. I'm kind of riding the coattails. And it's going to be so fun. Um, and that, you know, we're going to do some more d'oeuvres and then we're going to do a kind of a day of networking and meeting. And we're even giving away a bunch of prizes, like a big screen and Oculus and um, I think an iPad and stuff like that. And then a, a VIP really swank dinner, a nice catered affair. And then the next day, kind of like a pool party and just more networking. So all that for 199 bucks, you will not beat it. That's in Miami in December. Uh, go to Empowery.com events and you guys can check that out. So again, Thank you, Michael. Good to see you, buddy. I actually just saw your picture of you mud-covered from St. Lucia, and uh, I noticed that I was in the back with complete uh, unspoiled skin, no mud on my skin. (laughs) Uh, But that was a fun time and a great memory. So uh, good to see you online. Thanks again, everybody. We're out for now, and uh, until next time.